Hey crew, before we get started today, just a note, I'm sure you've heard the exciting news about Ethan Peck being cast in the role of Spock on Discovery, and if you haven't, where have you been? Ferris Bueller was right, life moves pretty fast. And if you want to keep abreast of current events, specifically in the world of Star Trek, you do well to follow us on Twitter at at E-I-S-T-P-O-D and like us on Facebook at Enterprising Individuals. We're always sharing and discussing the latest in Trek news on social media, and you don't want to miss out, so join the crew on social media today. Speaking of news, some of the best news that I've gotten recently is that the Pocket Books Star Trek line is beginning again in earnest with three new books to be released in 2019, with the first being a Star Trek Discovery tie-in novel, The Way to the Stars, which will focus on Sylvia Tilly, and the author of the novel is Una McCormick. You are about to hear the voice of Una McCormick for around, oh, an hour or so. I was very fortunate to get a chance to chat with her about DS9 in general and the Way of the Warrior specifically. I had a lot of fun talking with her, and I hope you enjoy the show. Let me know what you think at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page. And with a hearty kapla, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide I wanna know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and no blood screenings for me, thanks. Keep that dick talk to yourself. I gave it the office. I'm joined on this episode by New York Times bestselling author Dr. Una McCormick. Una is a lecturer in creative writing at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, England, where she's also the co-director of the university's Center for Science Fiction and Fantasy. She's the author of a dozen novels, including entries in the Pocket Books DS9 series, as well as Weird Space novels Star of the Sea and The Baba Yaga, which she co-wrote with Weird Space creator Eric Brown. Una has also written Big Finish audio dramas based on Blake Seven and Doctor Who, as well as a trio of Who novels featuring the 11th and 12th Doctors. Una, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That all sounds very grand, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's all accurate, right? <laughs> it's, it's all accurate, yes. It sounds great now you say it all together. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, welcome aboard. Permission to come aboard granted. Thank you very much. Today we'll be talking about The Way of the Warrior, the first episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. DS9 wasn't initially an easy sell for many Star Trek fans. After 25 years of seeing our heroes boldly go throughout the galaxy, many viewers didn't relish the chance to see a Starfleet crew boldly sit and wait for things to happen. The show's creators struggled with finding a voice for the series, laboring to create a deep, nuanced social setting, while also seeking to please the expectations of fans accustomed to the adventures of a starfaring enterprise. But as the series progressed, DS9 was able to utilize its status as the middle child of the franchise to get away with telling stories outside of the approved Roddenberry mode, and to present situations that examined real-world social and political issues without the lens of utopia to look through. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Una, let's let's look into your dossier. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Well, I, uh, my pathway is probably a bit different from a lot of people because um, 
I'm I'm not the right kind of age that uh, I was able to watch the original series. Mm-hmm. But remember, I'm growing up in the UK, and it's it's not really showing when I'm a kid. You can you can maybe see bits and pieces. So the way I got in was actually during the films during the 1980s. I was sure. I was just about the right age. I was sort of you know uh, 11 or 12, something like that. So that's that was my original crew was the uh, the movie uh, crew. Right. Uh, and I, I absolutely loved it. I, I, I mean, I remember the fourth film most fondly. I was just the right kind of age to enjoy <laughs> the humour. And yes. I still love it, actually. I, you know, it's still one of my, my favourites. Um, so it was the films I came into. And then, uh, of course, uh, what happened next was The Next Generation. Right. And again... Very, very, very complicated to get to watch this in Britain. It's nothing like streaming things and, you know. What, what is the syndication sort of situation uh, vis-a-vis uh, the BBC and just being in England? Oh, well, Discovery at the moment, we're, we're getting maybe 12 hours behind okay. you, I think. Sure. Kind of pop, popping up on Netflix straight away. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're getting it on Netflix as well, aren't we? Yeah, so uh, it's slightly less complicated for us, I think. So no problem. <laughs> all, all I have to do is to remember not to open Twitter, which is, you know, harder <laughs> right. than you think. But uh, <laughs> within the realms of sort of, uh, you know, normal human behavior. But we were looking at 18 months before, oh. um, yeah, with, with Next Generation, you were looking at 18 months before um, episodes arrived on the BBC, which is what most people had at the time. They were landing on Sky Television before then. Okay. But not everybody had satellite. Uh, as listeners might know, in, in Britain, you pay a TV license. Right. Uh, and, you know, you get the BBC. Uh, but everything else at the time, you had to, you know, you had to buy a new kit. You had to, we didn't get cable, you know, you had to buy a satellite dish and that way you would get Sky. But still then you were looking at quite a time lag to see episodes. So it, it wasn't easy. My, my first exposure to TNG was I would rent videos from Blockbuster. This dates me, doesn't it? <laughs> so you would get these sort of cassettes of um, two episodes. And every Friday lunchtime, my, my sixth form college, my classes would end early. And I would, uh, this shows you how fashionable a, a teenager I was. I would walk home past the video store. And that would be my Friday nights while all my uh, classmates were out clubbing. I'd pop on a <laughs> next gen episode. So it's a serious business, my teenage years. Right. <laughs> but but we were looking at you know it wasn't easy to get this stuff. And um, I think other ways I saw it was sort of uh, um, I had friends who were a little bit older, and they would get these little. I've talked about this in the past. We'd get these little care packages in from America of sort of sort of copied off air. Uh, uh, recorded episodes okay. but then oh no there was an even greater complication because of course we had a different vcr technology okay. you were, you know, sure. yeah we had to convert <laughs> them from oh my god it was just so you had to be pretty dedicated yeah to like you, you know you really had to be uh had to be dedicated to watch next gen uh and then um deep space nine i didn't really watch because the the big secret was I was a not so big secret I was a Babylon Five fan. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, and Deep Space Nine was dead to me for years. I you know I just wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't look at it, wouldn't look at it at all. And in fact, my gateway to Deep Space Nine was this episode, The Way of the oh, Warrior. Okay. A friend of mine just said, kept on and on and on, until I kind of went, well, it won't do any harm. And he lent me Way of the Warrior, and that was it. I was absolutely sucked in. Uh, so, so this is my way in. So it's quite a complicated route into Star Trek for a British fan of my age. I think you know, you've you've really got to 
you've really got to work at it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you uh, came around ultimately. Yeah, so have I. I know. <laughs> I mean, in, in the most sort of, you know, embarrassing reversal of uh, in, uh, one of the most embarrassing reversals in my career. But uh, yeah, I definitely came around to Deep Space Nine. But these kids today, they don't know they're born with their downloads. And their <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. remember the uh, the old VHSs as well, and of course, you can yeah. only to get the good quality. You can only put uh, you know two hours or so, so there's only two episodes right. on there. Yeah, yep. yeah, it's a lot different than a Blu-ray today. Um, as far as uh, you know, the original Trek, uh, actually all uh, incarnations of Trek, but especially the original Trek is hailed as being very progressive socially, and in many ways it certainly was. But yet, there's a distinctively '60s brand of sexual politics on display in the show. Um, and many of the franchises that we're enjoying today uh, are come from less than progressive roots. So I guess I, I'm interested to know, as a modern creator and a fan, um, what's your take on redeeming properties that are stale from the perspective of representation and equality? Um, well, I, I just I just go straight in as a feminist. I, I, I foreground female characters. Sure. I make them points of view. Several of my books, I think, have entirely female or or I don't specify the gender mm. uh, because we're dealing with alien races um, species I should say um, so uh, I go straight in there in terms of representation I think um, Next Gen and DS9 aren't bad there's, there's lots of women there mm. Whether the storylines play out uh, progressively or whether, you know, they actually get to talk to each other very much, which is another kind of marker of recognizing female agency is another question. I think, TN I think TNG and DS9 do pretty well in putting women front and center. Um, maybe the stories don't play out as well. So I think as a, as a, a particular as a female writer, you're, you're kind of... Um, trying to bring them forward, give them agency, make them the heroines of the story or the the, the agents of the story. Mm -hmm. So that's that's always where I've come from. We've talked about this previously on this show, of course, um, how TNG, like you said, puts those female characters in there. But the question of whether they have anything really constructive to do is yeah. often an open question. And I wonder yeah. if that's just an effect of there being a mandate or just a general uh, atmosphere of we want to have uh, equality, you know, we want to have equal representation, but then everybody writing it is, you know, mostly an older man. And so they just don't think that way. Or maybe they think that I, you know, I don't know what to write for a woman. You're like, I'm not, that's not my experience. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder what was holding them back. Oh, I think, I, I, I mean, the problem with television is that you're always under pressure. Yeah. Uh, it's an extremely high-pressured uh, environment. And I think when you're writing very quickly, you you often reach for a toolbox that you've used before. Mm -hmm. So and I know at least, at least one of the seasons, this isn't season two of TNG hit by a writer's strike and this kind of thing. Right. Um, so you're working against real institutional pressures. If, if, if sexism is institutionalized by which i mean it's not it's not conscious choice on the part of people it's just the way things are set up right. then the best will in the world isn't always going to isn't always going to be good enough mm. it's got to be a kind of conscious effort to to break these barriers down sure. and you, you know they do their best but uh, um just having the women there isn't enough. It's right. got to go somewhere from there, yeah. And this is why I've had so much fun with Catherine Pulaski in my books. You kind of go, well, <laughs> who can I have the most fun with sure. as a female character? And by goodness, I've had some fun with her. <laughs> and mostly untouched ground. I mean, she didn't really have that much of a role when she was on the show, so there's a plenty that you could do there. 
There was, and, and it was one of these things where I found I, I loved her because uh, remember, of course, I'm watching these videos in isolation, you know. <laughs> right, uh, on uh, Friday on, night. <laughs> Friday night, exactly that, all my friends out clubbing. So I'm watching the, sitting there at home watching the spaceships going, wow, Catherine Pulaski's brilliant. She's so shirty. She's so bad-tempered. Um, <laughs> and of course, I wasn't really, because I, I didn't know the original series at the time, I didn't know this whole thing about her being a kind of reboot of Bones and this sort of thing. Right. So I just, I just loved her from the get-go. I thought she was a hoot. And then you kind of, you know, you go online and you talk to other fans and you realise, oh, right, I'm in a bit of a minority here. Never mind. I'm still right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've I've always had a soft spot for Pulaski, and it's been a real treat to to get away. She says everything I wish I could get away with saying. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, that's what I love about her. <laughs> uh, do you think? Here's a big question. Uh, you know, your doctorate, of course, is in sociology. From a sociological perspective. Um, you know, DS9 deals with a lot of issues uh, societally and politically. Do you think that uh, the issues that it presents or the way that it presents them are presented um, fairly plausible um, from the standpoint of a socio-political ecology? Uh, I think the attraction for me was that there was lots of scope to world build. And mm-hmm. um, listeners might know I've, I've written a lot of books about Cardassia. Right. Uh, and, and often I was sort of stitching together bits and pieces of history or just throw away lines where the warrior has a lot of these, of course. Yeah. Um, so I was stitching together a plausible history where I think deep space nine in particular is really good. And why the show works for me is that everyone acting is giving it 110%. They are absolutely authentically there. And that can carry you through any kind of, uh, it can carry you a long way through maybe an implausible idea or not great special effects, mm-hmm. or a bit of a shonky wrap-up of a, a plot. The, the the characters who I think had these kind of strong socio-political stories are particularly authentic performances. People like um, Nana Visitor, uh, Andy Robinson, uh, the whole Cardassian set, uh, Casey Biggs. Uh, they're just they're bringing it this absolute authenticity to these performances, and that makes you believe the world the plausibility of the world they've come from, I think. Sure. Even though mostly what you're getting is just like a painted picture. <laughs> you, yeah, right. You know, the camera settles <laughs> on and then you then you cut away. You're going, I completely believe this is an inhabited space. Our favourite guys are uh, on Cardassia, my partner and I. Our favourite guys are, uh, we cut to Cardassia, we see a sort of big view screen, yeah? Right. Uh, with maybe the cat superimposed. And there are always sort of three guys in uh, uh, Cardassian uniform. <laughs> turning to each other and sort of talking about what's going on. They are absolutely our favourite Cardassians. So <laughs> we're not dealing with, you know, beautiful visual effects, but right. the authenticity of the performance is what carries you, I think. Yeah, if they believe it, they can make you believe it. Exactly that, exactly that. Uh, this is a Star Trek show, but we take periodic detours into other fandoms when appropriate. And I have to pause real quick, uh, well, maybe not so quick, and have a little uh, uh, Blake 7 talk with you. Uh, I will, yeah, I wondered if that was coming. Yeah. I've, I've been doing this for over two years now, and statistically, I must have had a Blake 7 fan on the show before. But every time I bring it up, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Oh, well, they're, they're fools and they're, they're losing out. But, and I, th- I think I've proved that I don't really know the ins and outs of the British Broadcasting Company, but I can't understand why it never seemed to catch on more uh, here, um, at least with star- hardcore sci-fi, sci-fi fans, especially with uh, DVDs and streaming now where people are discovering or rediscovering forgotten gems like Farscape or Space 1999 or The Prisoner. Uh, it still seems to be a, a complete unknown for most people. 
I think it's uh, it's a show that has has visually dated very 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 badly. I mean, we're talking about shows that you you know you you've got to rely on the performances and the authenticity <laughs> of the actors to right. make up for special effects. I mean, you can hear them sort of plumping around wooden sets and um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know I, I love this show. It's my it's my very first sort of television love and I adore it. But my goodness, it, it's it's dated. I uh, saw a video yeah. uh, on YouTube that was like a um, it was a throwback. It was a period video uh, from a segment on Blue Peter where they were showing kids how to make a, t- a teleport bracelet. <laughs> yeah. And once once she got done, it was like that looks pretty good. Like that kind of looks like yeah, the ones on the show. That looks exactly like the ones. It's probably more robust. They were notoriously <laughs> yeah. breakable, actually. So uh, if they had made them from a, a plastic bottle, they probably lasted a bit better. Um, <laughs> it it it. It has dated, and um, uh, I think it's um, uh, Doctor Who because it's positioned more as a, a as what you call kiddles, kind of between kid right. and, and adults. Mm. Um, I think you can forgive a little bit more, and it has a longer Doctor Who just has a longer life behind it, and and, and ends up visually quite impressive, obviously these days, mm. uh, and by the end of its original run. Whereas I think Blake Seven is very much uh, a product of a certain time at the BBC quite stagey quite theatrical not much money spent so um i don't know what it must be like i, I mean i watched it as a kid and i just adored it because kids you you just don't mind these things you're you're, right. you're filling in the gaps yourself your imagination's so vivid uh whether somebody could come to blake seven cold now and watch it although some people do you know they they really do i'm listening to podcasts of people watching it now and mm-hmm. you, you know of no background in sort of bbc tv or anything mm-hmm. um I think it's quite a hard sell, and maybe that's why it never really caught on in the way that Doctor Who did. It's sophisticated as well, um, because one of the things I like about it is the real is the whip smart dialogue. Um, I mean, a lot of British shows are like that, and American shows tend to be hit or miss in the way that they craft like witty dialogue. But every character yeah. on that show is like a space Oscar Wilde. I mean, you could cut <laughs> out all the sci-fi parts of a Blake Seven episode, and it it would be like an episode of Frasier or The Golden Girls, where everybody's just quip, 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 quip. Everybody's got a quip. It's exactly like that. And I think I, I, I often say this, but even the really, really bad episodes and that there are a couple of stinkers. There's always a moment where somebody bounces a line at someone and somebody bounces a line back and you go, that's it. You've got my you've got my admission fee here. <laughs> right. I'm happy just to be watching this exchange. Right. I don't so care they, that you're just standing on a, a soccer pitch somewhere. Uh, this is uh, yeah. I'm in. Oh, <laughs> soccer pitch! Wow. They they wouldn't they wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's backyard, I think, is more likely. Right. But, um, <laughs> so it, it, it has a lot that I find really commendable, this sort of sharpness. It's very, very cynical. It's very oh, yeah. bleak. And it was created yeah. by Terry Nation, who I think of as sort of the anti-Roddenberry, um, because yeah. that show, of course, Survivors 2, uh, they're a lot like DS9 in that they have no problem telling incredibly discouraging stories about societies and what societies do to other people. Yeah, Survivors is a really good show, and uh, uh, because it's set in the, you know, it's it, it's set contemporary to transmission. Mm. It it doesn't have that, you know, you're not looking at dodgy special effects in the same. It's a very very good program, Survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a really quite dark worldview to to Blake Seven in particular um, that sort of edges into into nihilism in a way, um, and maybe that is yeah, that. It, that's a very British thing, <laughs> I think. So I, I don't know whether that doesn't carry as well. You know, there, there's no utopia in um, in Blake. So there really no. is. 
at all. There's no salvation, no redemption, apart from the episode called Redemption. Um, <laughs> and um, having been a, a Blake Seven fan from a young age, it must, it's got to be insane that you're now writing Big Finish scripts for the original actors. Oh, my goodness. I, I cannot tell you how exciting this is. <laughs> I think if um, uh, if you know people listening to this, if they if they imagine uh, a situation where uh, they wrote something and those lines were delivered by William Shatner, uh, sure, that yeah. that's that's the kind of thing that has happened to me. I've ha- I've had my lines delivered by Paul Darrow, who's the the sort of anti-hero of Blake Seven. Right. Uh, I, I couldn't can't believe my luck. I think of eight-year-old me, and I, I just want to nudge her and go, Do you know, it's all right. You keep on staying at home on a Friday night. I'm <laughs> <laughs> watching those videos because it will pay off and you won't enjoy yourself in those nightclubs anyway. You'll just have a miserable time. <laughs> so stay at home and do all this work and it does pay off. Uh, it really, dream come true. So much fun. Uh, and I'm really lucky to get to do it. That's, so uh, That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, Trek fans can probably tune back in at this point and we will <laughs> return to the regularly scheduled program. Uh, we talked a little about why you wanted to uh, talk about We Are the Warrior today. Uh, and I wanted to speak, I had spoke earlier in the opening about the sort of uphill climb that the show had faced. Um, and one of the problems was that, you know, two years in, uh, Star Trek Voyager premiered. Uh, and it was, you know, sort of the new hotness. It was the flagship show for the new uh, Paramount Network. Um, and they were back in a ship flying around. And so in a lot of ways, DS9 was left to its own devices to sort of progress as it would. And we know now how history has judged those shows. Uh, in fact, Star StarTrek.com, I think yesterday as of this recording, released a, a poll or the results of a poll concerning which Trek series had the best final season. And DS9 ran away with it by a wide margin. So mm-hmm. clearly, uh, you know, fans prefer uh, this series, uh, at least looking back. Yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's uh, it's a slow burn, isn't it? You've got to commit to DS9. Certainly, yeah. Yep. Uh, Voyager you can drop into, Next Gen you can drop into. You know, there's sort of nominal arcs, I think, in Voyager. Uh, But DS9, particularly from this point onwards, Mm -hmm. um, a few detours, you've got to commit to this show to kind of get the full benefit. Um, So I I can see that if if you have committed and maybe you've rewatched a couple of times, it's going to reward that kind of time that you've taken with it. So that doesn't surprise me. Although I don't think season seven is the best season. (laughs) <laughs> okay <laughs> there you go speaking of uh long form storytelling uh you mentioned discovery before D- did you get to see discovery oh yeah yeah oh my goodness yes absolutely yeah did you absolutely. like it i loved it absolutely yeah. loved it wow just so exciting really i think you you've i had a you had a feeling that all bets were off that though this was star trek uh it, it was not like you'd seen before uh, some lovely sort of tricks and surprises and um, plot twists. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep off spoilers just in case, but um, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just in case. I mean, uh, you know, who knows? There might be somebody listening to a Star Trek podcast who hasn't <laughs> it's possible. watched this. It's possible. Yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> There's somewhere. So I, but uh, I loved it a bit. So visually, it looked fantastic. Adores the performances as well. Um, uh, great to have the women front and center, and really interesting. Not being there because they were women, but being there because they were people. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, big thumbs up from me. Three thumbs up. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, looking forward to the second season uh, oh, on my yeah. end for sure. Immensely. Well, we, let's get to the uh, Deep Space Nine episode, "The Way of the Warrior." It is, of course, the first 
episode. It's a feature length episode of the fourth season. It first aired on the 2nd of October in 1995. It was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. Uh, Bear and Wolf, which sounds like a Russian fairy tale, uh, were <laughs> primarily responsible, along with Hans Beamler, for DS9's Dominion War story arc. Bear got his start in Trek as a writer and producer on the third season of Next Gen, and he'd later be tapped by Michael Piller to be a writer and EP on DS9, and he eventually took over as showrunner for the series midway through its run. Wolf's career with Trek began with his script A Fistful of Datas for TNG, and he would go on to write many scripts for DS9 before leaving the show before its sixth season. He went on to develop, write, and executive produce the syndicated series Andromeda, based on concepts by Gene Roddenberry. He was also a consulting producer and writer for the USA Network show The 4400, and was an EP and writer-developer of the Dresden Files series, and he's currently a writer and producer on the CBS series Elementary. That's uh, that's our version of Sherlock. That's not yeah. Sherlock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you a Sherlock fan? Um, mm, intermittently, intermittently, I think. Yeah. He I has similar a... qualities to the Doctor. Would you ever read a Sherlock or an elementary tie-in? Yeah. Oh, well, if somebody offered, obviously, I'd, I'd jump at it. <laughs> yeah, right yeah, yeah. No. Oh, I, I love it a bit. It's a fantastic show. <laughs> <laughs> Moffat is listening. Um, I, I sort of like Sherlock. They're, they're both very pretty, um, which oh, yeah. helps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I can find myself sort of watching them quite happily. Um, I'm not sure the plots always hang together, and it, it's quite self-indulgent. But oh, uh, immensely. I, I, yes, I say quite. I mean, quite a lot. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I found it. I, I think I, I enjoyed it to start with. Uh, I found it really visually interesting and exciting. Perhaps not so much in recent seasons. I love the one that's set at the wedding. Um, oh, that sure, was, yeah. Yeah, that was just crackers. It was great. I loved it. It was like it was like watching a piece of fan fiction, which yeah. is, is a compliment in my book because that's my background. So I, I love that one, um, but uh, not not always sure about it. Yeah, it's. I think when they said, "Hey, we're going to bring this back," but it's a modern sensibility, a modern audience. Uh, no more just sitting around in drawing rooms. You know, we have to pump this up and so we have yeah. to have the effects and um, all the little visual touches and things like that. And so, yeah, you're right. It's a great looking show, but sometimes it, it goes off the rails a little bit. Yeah, you feel like those visuals are sort of disguising. You kind of go, well, hang on a minute. That plot doesn't actually I'm make supposed it. to forget about that, aren't <laughs> I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't look at that. Look at this. And you go, well... <laughs> Uh, guys, that doesn't work in this days. These days of sort of repeat viewings, and uh, I think you need. I'm, I'm not. I'm not always sure. There's the kind of um, solidity behind the gloss. So, um, but you know, what do I know? It's been massive. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. You like a show with uh, the plastic brace, uh, bracelets. So. Exactly that. That's it. Where are the plastic bracelets? Going? Where's the quarry? <laughs> I don't believe this at all. Uh, this episode was directed by James L. Conway. He's directed many episodes of all of the post TOS pre discovery series. Um, Bear considers him one of his favorite directors, thanks to, thanks to his work on episodes like Duet and this episode, The Way of the Warrior. The start date for this episode is 49011.4. And, Una, your assignment, if you can, is to give us a synopsis of The Way of the Warrior. Now, I usually assign a 25 word synopsis, but this is a feature length episode, so I think we can go as high as 50. Uh, Klingons attack the station. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Wow, that's uh, that's terse and uh, yeah, concise. I like that. Um, shenanigans happen. I think <laughs> right. that's about right, isn't it? That covers the bases, I think. <laughs> that covers just about everything, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, we, oh, let's try something a bit better. Um, uh, with the ever-present threat of changeling infiltration, 
the crew of Deep Space Nine find themselves under attack from a Klingon force set on destroying Cardassia. Ooh, that's dust jacket territory there. I know. <laughs> I'm queen of the blurbs. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, all of which is to say is that this is a, this is a kind of uh, high-stakes action episode uh, that's... Uh, chiefly there to reboot the show and introduce Worf. It certainly is. Uh, and it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned reboot. I want to talk about that in just a yeah. little bit. Uh, first, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks for this episode. Uh, at, as you said, uh, there's a bit of a reboot here as season four opens, and there are a few notable changes around the station. Uh, the very opening of the show gets a facelift. Uh, many ships have been added to our view of the station. The Defiant departing the station and entering the wormhole was added. Uh, and the theme is slightly different. It's got a slightly faster tempo uh, mm. in this new opening. Uh, Bashir and Dax have both received promotions off screen after season three to lieutenant and lieutenant commander, respectively. Uh, and Alexander Siddig would be credited as, as such from this point on in the series, as opposed to his previous credit as Sadiq Al-Fadil. Every Brooks completes his transformation back into Hawk from Spencer for Hire in this episode, as he finally returns to the shaved head goatee combo that we all know and love. Now, Paramount had initially required that the actor have hair on his head, as they didn't want audiences to associate Brooks with his previous role, but cooler and balder heads finally prevailed. <laughs> At the end of DS9's third season, uh, the production was under instruction from the network to shake up the show due to uh, falling ratings, and that led to the idea that the Klingons would end their alliance and a conflict with the Federation. So Bear pitched a Klingon arc to Rick Berman, and Berman suggested that Worf should be added to the show. And apparently this didn't exactly fit the master plan that Bear and company were formulating for future seasons. And I think Bear and some others considered the departure that the show took over the course of the fourth season uh, as being uh, not wholly detrimental, but slightly detrimental to the overall Dominion storyline. But despite this, many have commended the solid storytelling that's on display in the fourth season. And Anna Kaplan of Cinefantastique called the fourth season, quote, undeniably DS9's best, quite possibly the best season of Star Trek ever, end quote. So strong praise for the fourth season. Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure I would call it the best. I, I, my heart is with the fifth and sixth seasons of mm. Deep Space Nine. Um, I think you you do um, when you watch it back, you you do feel that it's a slight detour from what from what Iris Stephen Burr's got in mind. Um, although there are some there are some there are some crackers in this season. Uh, yes, you, you feel that it's a it's a sort of dry run for what they're going to do in seasons five and six and, and seven to, uh, 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 although that, that the pacing of season seven is, is not as strong as um, the seasons that go before. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, it, it's a, this episode in particular, I think is a really strong entry. It, it just hits the ground running, doesn't it? It says, yeah. here's this show. You might know what Deep Space Nine was all about. Well, we're going to show you what it can do now. And this episode just doesn't stop. It just cracks on and on and on and on and on. And um, before you know it, you go, that's a completely different program. And yet I think it's still um, uh, calling back to what the show was and calling forwards to what it's going to be. And it's a type of TV that is, was just de rigueur. It's just the way TV worked, especially genre TV and our syndicated shows back in the day. That's almost absent now. Um, you talked about the pacing of the seventh season. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, I mean, it's mainly like the first half is just sort of like one shot episodes. And then it just goes right into the last, you know, 10 episodes, which is basically one 10 hour yeah. movie. And nowadays uh, you would have either, 
your show would be serialized and you'd have 12 or 13 episodes like Star Trek yeah. Discovery or you'd just be a sitcom and it's just, you know, a reset every week. So they, they, we don't seem to have both anymore. It seems to be more specialized. That's right. Yeah. If you think, you know, season seven, that uh, what, what, what are they on average? They're, are they about 20, they're 22, 26 episodes, aren't they? Um, Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you think of season seven, there are an awful lot of episodes going Hello, Esri Dax, you're new, you know. Yeah. Oh, let's, let's, we, we better have another Esri Dax episode. And you're kind of going, okay, guys, we, we get, we get, you know, well, she's lovely. I mean, she's a great character. But we get that you're you're trying to make us feel that she's, you know, uh, um, a replacement for Jadzia and make us feel comfortable with that. And then, uh, yeah, that, that last arc feels very truncated and takes some very odd side swipes. The, the sort of Section 31 episode is very odd really sort of slows down the pace of the um, <laughs> yeah. that final arc. It's a very odd episode. and It isn't a very good resolution to that that storyline, I think. Um, but something about those two seasons beforehand, you think, oh, the pace of this is just terrific. And, and even when it takes a kind of... Because uh, obviously, you know, they're long seasons. Even when they do those one-off episodes, there's a, there's a, the way they're shooting it and filming it and lighting it, you feel this sort of it's like they're slowly slowly turning the light down from sort of way of the warrior onwards and then they all go into the i think that cisco hasn't quite evolved into his perfect state yet we've got to get him in that gray uniform and then we've got kind of the perfect cisco it's like everything's just going a bit darker everything's going a bit more grayscale and once they've got the lights down everyone in gray that's it we've hit perfect perfection (laughs) deep space nine i think sure uh, here's some facts about this episode specifically. Um, I was uh, happy to see that the infamous skull-faced warrior from Worf's Klingon calisthenics program is seen in this episode. Uh, he makes his transition to DS9 after appearing in three episodes of TNG. Now, we never find out what race he is, if he's even a real creature, although the script for The Way of the Warrior describes him as a monster from Klingon mythology. And if his face looks familiar, it might be because his mask is a Skeletor mask from the Masters of the Universe film. <laughs> And Frank, oh. Frank Langella, of course, played Skeletor in Masters of the Universe. And, of course, he appears as Jaro Essa in the three-parter that opens DS9's second season. Now, you see, my um, my brain is immediately trying to get a sort of in-show explanation for that. So, right, like you know, Yeah, did they, did they sort of pick up transmissions or something early Possibly. in their culture? And uh, this figure from the, you know, these ethereal transmissions from space, this hideous skeleton figure has really kind of impacted <laughs> on their culture in some way. I'm very excited about that. That's my, that's my Watsonian explanation for that. I like that. Yeah, that's good headcanon. <laughs> it gets yeah, even yeah. more twisty, though, when you think about the fact that uh, Robert Duncan McNeil is in that movie as well, and he plays Tom Paris uh, on Voyager. Oh, wow, yeah. And then Meg Foster plays Evil Lynn in the movie, and she appears in The Muse, uh, which is a fourth season, a season episode where she is a mysterious figure that helps Jake write his novel. Oh, yes, that's a terrible episode. I think the writers <laughs> were embarrassed about that episode, weren't they? They sort of, um, they sort of say later, uh, oh, my goodness, how did we get away with this? We just sort of... We're really stuck for an episode. Let's have an episode where a, a beautiful lady is turned on by people writing. Right, yeah, yeah. 
guys. So uh, they're they're a bit embarrassed about that one, aren't they? That's Jake yeah, so, Sub Rosa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not a great episode, I think. Though I love Jake. I, I think it's a great performance from him. Um, so um, so yeah, that's that's my Watsonian explanation for the skeletal guy. Yeah. I I, I would buy that. I think that's pretty good. Um, I uh, there is no Jake in this episode, sadly. And uh, episode or excuse excuse me, season four is uh, strange in that Kai Win and Grand Nagus Zek uh, don't appear at all in this season. So it's mostly Klingons for, for most of this here. Yeah, that tells you a little about the detour, doesn't it? Because yeah. obviously my win is, is front and centre and, and the Bajor story is incredible. I wonder if they kind of felt that the Bajor stories had got exhausted uh, and, and people just weren't very into it, weren't they? I mean, you know, I love a great story of a fight between a, a pope and a secular leader. Um, <laughs> but people people just didn't go for the Bajor stories. Isn't that something they had in audience responses? Less Bajor, I think. I, some of my, well, I guess I, I'm trying to think of like my favorite moments and top 10. I don't think anything from Bajor really hits that list, but, yeah. but I do think it's an important part of the show. Yeah, I I mean, obviously, I think I, I've said this elsewhere, but I'm watching a show called Star Trek Cardassia. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, Bajor is kind of a, a, a obviously a necessary part of that, but, right. <laughs> but but yeah, I'm I'm sort of there on Cardassia Prime whilst the rest of this uh, this show takes place. I think one thing I found watching this show, watching Way of the Warrior again, um, and I've watched it many times um, over the years, um, but watching it just the other night to uh, to come on this show is that I I hadn't noticed before how many uh, different uh, the how many scenes there are which are two handers. So with mm. two characters and how many different permutations of that two hander they try. So it's almost like as part of the mix, they're seeing which of these partnerships work. Because we know Ojo Quark well, works well. We know Jadzia Cisco works well. Right. But you get other things as well. You get Ojo Garrick, which we've had in the past, but which we, is a lovely pairing. That's front and centre. We know uh, Garrick and Bashir. But you get Bashir and Odo, uh, which you very, very rarely see in this, the show. So rare that uh, I, I put it in as a pitch of a novel once. It, my novel, Hollow Men, has them as a pairing. But you get little scenes with them. You get Quark and Garrick. You get all sorts of different. You get Kira and Jadzia, which I, I love and sadly gets lost as they get paired off. Um, but uh, it's really interesting to see how the show, they set, these two episodes are trying out these different combinations, almost as if the writers are going can we mix the show up a bit? Are right. there characters that we can put together and see how well they work? So I hadn't noticed that before. Now I've watched this episode, you know, a dozen plus <laughs> sure. times, you know, um, <laughs> but this time watching it, that, that really struck home. I think it's another plot so well. I was kind of looking at trying to look it through a different lens. So I really enjoyed that this time around, particularly the Odo Bashir scenes. I think that's a nice little pairing that we, we don't always see much of. Yeah. Uh, so in between all this sort of plotting and explosion and new stuff, I think they're finding time to do some lovely quiet moments. Though of course, there's the favorite root, the famous root beer bit as well, isn't there? So they, uh, yes, yeah. of course, yeah. Which apparently was, um, I've heard sort of two stories about it. Uh, one that it was, you know, written up because they were a little short. Uh, but then Ronald D. Moore said that um, it turned out that they were long for the episode and they wanted to cut that bit. And he's like, no, 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 you, you can't cut this. You don't understand. This is like the entire franchise, like right yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a smart guy. That's why he has uh, a lot of really successful shows. Like he That's knows what why he's, doing. he's, yeah, he's, you know, sort of top notch. I never, ever cut a Garrick scene. I mean, just, just <laughs> don't do it. Just don't do it. <laughs> 
course. Well, uh, Garrick appears in this episode, of course, as well as some other guest stars uh, that we would recognize. Uh, Penny Johnson's back as Cassidy. Uh, she continues from her initial appearance in Family Business late in season three. Robert O'Reilly returns as Gowron after his first DS9 appearance in the third season episode, The House of Cork, and he's going to stick around for a while. Marco Limo, of course, appears as Gal Ducat and in the flesh this time, uh, which is always nice. And, of course, uh, Martok is introduced in this episode, uh, played by J.G. Hertzler. Or is he? No. No, he's not. We find out later (laughs) that this Martok is a changeling imposter, and we meet the real one in, I believe, uh, in Purgatory's Shadow in Season 5. And it's a weird way to introduce a character that will become very important and well-loved later on. You see him in one episode in one season... Uh, he gets killed off in the beginning of the next season, and then, no, no, here's the real guy. So normally I would say that would be an interesting device to sort of show us everything he's not, and then we see the real guy, and that they kind of do that, but he's only in this episode of this season. You know, he disappears after this, so we don't mm-hmm. get to, a chance to know what he isn't before we meet the real man. Just yeah, that he has two eyes. They must have really liked him. Uh, you know, they were just, just must have really enjoyed his performance. Sure. Uh, I've no idea if they had this in mind. I think they. Uh, I think that was uh, true. Of, sorry, sorry to yeah. jump in, but I think that was yeah. true of uh, Jeffrey Combs's Wayun as well, because they killed him off, and they yeah. were like, "That was great. What? Let's what just say he's a clone." Just <laughs> we've we've just done a terrible thing. It's like that character in the film Storks. He yells, "We were wrong. We were immediately wrong." <laughs> and so they have to kind of come out. That we say that a lot around here. Um, yeah, they immediately go, "What have we done? We've got to get this guy back. This is fantastic." Oh well, let's make him a clone. Let's make him a changeling. So, right. um, so I don't know if the plan was originally to have Gowron as a changeling. I sort of get a sense that that there was an intention to have somebody in high up high. Right. Uh, as a changeling uh, um, and of course you see that played out in um, uh, the story set on earth don't you paradise lost and the uh, uh, I've, I've blanked on the title of the other Homefront. one thank you very much yeah so we have this uh, idea that there are there are changelings at the top we're, mm-hmm. we're given that so I wonder if the intention was it for it to be Gowron and then they went oh no Martok's great we can do some stuff with this guy um, and what a great storyline we get for him absolutely fantastic uh, really, um, really likable character, except yeah. that moment where he's sort of drinking with happiness over the, you know, um, billions of Cardassian dead. You, you know, <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, are you pleased with this? Yeah. So um, a great character. I'm really glad they brought him back. Well, Klingon is as Klingon does, I suppose. <laughs> I know that you are a huge uh, Garrick fan and... I um, I think that I have an irrational love uh, for Gowron. <laughs> I think that he's probably my favorite Klingon uh, outside of possibly Kang. Um, like Garrick, he's not someone whose actions I can condone. But yeah. to me, he's he's the Klingon's Klingon, at least for an older age. He's the epitome of the old ways of Klingon power. And he really he embodies the establishment that needs to change. Uh, you know, Ezri yeah. says as much. Uh, I think in tacking to the wind when she's bas- she's talking to Worf and she basically gives Worf permission to kill him. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine, tacking into the wind. Actually, yeah, uh, I, I I think this it, that would have been my other choice uh, oh, for okay. this. I absolutely love that that regime change. Oh yeah, how can you not love Gowron? It's absolutely brilliant. See you know, yeah. all that kind of eye rolling and you know it's uh, you, <laughs> yes you, you're sitting there booing him and i'm not i'm not a big klingon fan i usually uh kira has a line very early on in deep space nine klingons why and i often say this a lot <laughs> yes, so I, i'm totally on the Cardassian side in this war um sure. but um 
But I, I just, again, watching this episode the other night, you're kind of going, uh, that performance is just, how much fun is he having? You know, oh, uh, certainly, yeah. It's and, really and the, good fun. The character is, you know, he's a megalomaniac, but like, <laughs> but he's like, but he gets like what he has to do. He understands how Klingons work. He understands in, uh, the importance of military strength, but he understands subterfuge as well, which I don't think yeah. a lot of Klingons do. Yeah. And he, he knows when it's being used on him. And when he employs it himself, he's yeah. savvy enough to paint it uh, publicly as be, a strength, you know, or honor. So he's like this Machiavellian autocrat yeah. in, in, a, in an autocratic society. Like he's mastered the game of this, uh, of how this works. And he doesn't share power, and of course that jealousy of power is what ultimately destroys him. But he goes down swinging. It's he's the right man for the wrong era. It's very Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah. He's very, uh, he's very, very clever, and he's very not human, uh, and that <laughs> and that makes it a really kind of scary watch. Yeah, because yeah. you never know how he's gonna, whether he's gonna, you know, just explode or whether he's just gonna cackle and find what's happened very amusing. Right. Uh, it's it's a great part, and uh, uh, yeah, I absolutely love it. Even for someone who's like Klingons, why? Klingons, why? I, I love Gowron. <laughs> uh, and that's all the characters that are added. Oh no, wait a minute. There's one more guy. Someone named um, Worf, son of Moak. Uh, yeah, in yeah. This episode. Really? Where did he come from? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about Worf being added to the cast in season four? You see, this is I, I've, I've now set myself up as this person who goes Klingons. Doesn't like Klingons. Uh, doesn't like Klingons. <laughs> exactly when I said, oh, I don't like Westerns, apart from all the Westerns I've watched. Right. Um, I, I love Worf. Uh, I, I love Michael Dorn's performance. Uh, yeah. Again, absolute authenticity. And the thing I love, uh, he's got one of my he's got one of my favorite lines in this, which is about the hats that they're wearing nice hat <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that that's that epitomizes war for me this sort of quite you know incredibly serious quite buttoned up uh character individual and underneath it there's there's this very sort of dry quite warm uh very sensitive individual mm-hmm. uh so i do i do love wolf and i think he's a great addition to the show although uh, like with the Esri thing I think I think a lot of time is sort of spent uh justifying the presence of, of this character you know, so we get a whole arc yeah all the season four goes Klingon woods right. uh, rather than <laughs> woods, which is uh, my predilection um but uh, uh, no I, I won't say a bad word about Worf absolutely and I love love the romance with Judzia I think it's I think it's brilliant sure I think the show really can be commended for really committing to it not just being a stunt. I mean, it's clearly stunty, yeah. but yeah. he doesn't even show up until minute 24 of this little movie they're doing. Yeah. So they really lay the groundwork. And I think you're right. I mean, he's a great character. And I think he fits for a couple reasons. And one of them is we, we don't have a character like this, you know, on the show. I mean, not all Trek shows need a stoic warrior type, but, you know, now we've got one. And also the fact that he's familiar and if ds9 is like the sort of western town that we yeah. hear it described as sometimes he's a familiar character that comes walking into this town and so we can see it sort of through his eyes as well yeah. uh, as we've been spending a couple of years kind of getting to know it um i've i think you mentioned before i've uh, i've heard way of the warrior referred to as a turning point in the series mm-hmm. some people consider it like a second pilot for the show and I think that label fits. But as I uh, was looking back at the big moments from the show um, for this show, um, the series is littered with turning points, <laughs> just like yeah, yeah. significant events uh, that are pretentious and they they send the overall narrative in a new direction. 
And I think it's down to the fact that all in all, the episodes in this show are more akin to chapters in a book, like a long book, than yeah. the one-off episodes of previous uh, series. I think it was Rene Abergenois that compared the show to a Russian novel uh, in some ways. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, I, you know, I do it. Obviously, this is where I came into the show the first time. Uh, so I, I had always had this sense of it being a kind of... Um, uh, kick-starting it again, a, a real break-off point. And then when I watch the show from the beginning all the way through, you see much more continuity. In fact, there's you know there's quite a lot of, in season three that uh, rebe- reboots the show and becomes incredibly significant later on. You get the Dominion groundwork laid r- almost from the start, actually. So it, it, there's a lot going on. I do feel like this is the moment that Ira Stephen Burr kind of gets let loose. Yeah. yeah, and is able to kind of go, I'm free, I can do what I want, <laughs> I can make this serial drama, this big arc that I want to tell. So I think it's not as, um, if you if you look, if you watch Babylon 5, um, which is what I was doing at the time, um, you see immediately that it, it's much more uh, structured and, and plotted up, up until the start of season four, mm-hmm. uh, when it falls apart a bit. So I think uh, DS9 goes in fits and starts. I might. I, I like the comparison with a Russian novel or with a Victorian novel because I think they're often quite uneven as well. If you think of a Dickens novel and, and Dickens is, is knocking them out as serials, yeah? Right. So, you know, it, maybe the, the pacing changes or we go down a diversion or we go, you know, a, a little story emerges because uh, it's all being written on the fly. So I quite like that comparison because I think uh, Victorian novels often have that patchiness or unevenness uh, yeah. in some way. So I think it's a really good comparison. And, uh, uh, um, you know, Babylon 5 has other pleasures, that sense of having secrets revealed to you. And Deep Space Nine feels like this this setting is un- unfolding in front of you and being explored in more detail in front of you. So you get much more of a sense of maybe the writers flying by the seats of their pants than you do with Babylon 5. But it's a different kind of pleasure for the viewer, I think. How would you say they compare in terms of theme? Thematically, I'm not sure they've got. I mean, uh, you know, obviously there's a there's a big war, yeah. um, but uh, I, I I actually think that um, Babylon Five has got much more in common with sort of uh, fantasy. It, its themes are uh, kind of apocalyptic battle between dark and light, mm-hmm. whereas DS Nine seems like a realist novel to me. It's about World War Two. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and and they're not the same. It, it's not a, it's not Lord of the Rings. It's it's Catch Twenty Two or something. Okay, yeah? okay, sure. Yeah, so they're both, you know, they're both, they're both superficially about a space station in the middle of a big war. But I think thematically, they they feel like what what does Patrick Stewart say in that video? They're in a different mode. <laughs> <laughs> They feel like they feel like very different things to me. One yeah. is fantastical, one is realist. Well, realist themes get explored in this episode and indeed in the entire series. And uh, DS9 never really tries to shrink from questions, from tough questions. Um, Worf gets asked again to choose between his people and his job, or better put, um, his people and what's best for the quadrant. I guess. I mean, there is a lot at stake here. Um, Cisco has to save the uh, the Datapa Council and Dukat, <laughs> uh, yep. and he has to risk war with Klingons in the balance because you know 
it's the right thing to do. He's Starfleet. Um, but along the way in doing so, they decide against rescuing survivors of the conflict because it's too dangerous for their purpose. And we get a lot of what I like to, I really like to see in my fiction and especially in my DS9 is that everyone is trapped into making crappy decisions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which makes it, uh, which again sort of plays into it being realist fiction, isn't it? Yeah, in, in, a, right. in, in fantasy, you feel this like a, uh, a fate or destiny or something like that. Yeah, and, and that plays through in Babylon 5. In D Space Nine, there's just people going, uh, Do you think this is a good decision? Wrong oh, balance. I think we will be able to justify ourselves at the court martial. <laughs> 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 so, uh, and DS9 feels a lot more like that. Um, with Worf, what you were saying, I think that's really interesting what you're saying about him having to choose between his people and, you, you know, his better nature. I think this is a, a question that all of these, um, all of these uh, non-human characters uh, face at some point. Uh, Garrick uh, asks, is, is faced with the same dilemma in the previous season and, mm-hmm. and chooses badly. Uh, I think Quark, to a lesser degree, Odo makes the same choice. Odo has the same choice put to him uh, in the previous season and as Garrick and chooses the other way. I think all of these, uh, so the Klingons, the Cardassians, the changing government, I bet Quark gets this put to him at some point. They all are faced with this choice between their people and uh, a a kind of broader set of shared ethics Mm -hmm. that, that we could that we could see as sort of trans species in a way. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, maybe federation ethics. And I'm sure that, uh, I think they touch on this maybe in, in the pale moonlight with Cisco as well. Um, so uh, that's really interesting what you say about Worf. Uh, uh, Hewitt Wolf has this line somewhere about uh, Deep Space Nine, the station being the island of misfit toys. <laughs> sure, um, yeah. <laughs> which I think is from, from another show or something, I'm not quite sure. And I absolutely, it's where people wind up where they don't quite fit in anywhere else, <laughs> yeah. So Cisco, you know, he doesn't fit, doesn't really fit since the death of his wife. A Quark, obviously, you know, is, is always, is always uh, not quite making it as a cutthroat Ferengi. Right. Everybody, you know, Bashir is hiding this secret about himself. Uh, Kira, to a lesser degree, um, perhaps that story emerges later on. Her Maybe her religious side is at war with her sort of, uh, the way she's had to live her life. So right. I love this island of misfit toys. And Worf is another one who doesn't quite fit in, but they find this place together. That's fascinating that they're all sort of outsiders in a way. Um, Cisco says at some point in the series, um, I think it's in the, the Maquis episode, that it's easy to keep your... Uh, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. You know, it's easy to keep yeah. your ideals when things are going well. And to have each one of these characters be not really fully integrated into their own society has to really turn up the heat on trying to make that decision and not choose the easy path. And I, I guess with Kira, when Kai Wynn gets into power, she's at odds with the uh, the way that Bejnor has gone. Yeah. So all of them are, all, all of them are not fitting into where they are at uh, 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 where their own nations have gone. And yeah. that's almost leading up to tacking into the wind where we see those old regimes uh, overturned or moved on. Uh, that happens a lot in those last few episodes, doesn't it? There's a new Nagus. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Garon is killed. Cardassia, I think, has its um, has the most sort of dramatic uh, regime change. Yeah. Um, so it's all heading that way, I think. 
Were you thinking about this uh, episode or episodes like this when you were writing uh, Never Ending Sacrifice? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all these sort of little throwaway lines about the, you know, that scene at the start where Garrick is is trying to find out what's going on in Cardassia. You get these tiny little glimpses, and um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I tried to spin this coherent story. I, I, I this is a really interesting um, part of Cardassian history uh, mm. to write. Uh, when I was writing that novel, I, I'm, I'm really pleased with those sections. Actually, I I I really liked how little data I had to go on <laughs> and how much I was able to get away with. And as a result, I loved writing those sections when they. Uh, I think my protagonist is is the waiting for the Klingons to arrive and for Cardassia Prime to fall, uh, and um, that that's a gift for a writer. You're able to give sort of suspense and fear and people just waiting for an axe to fall sure. uh, or a battler in this case, uh, right. which, which, you know, gives some lovely, gives you some lovely moods that you can do as a writer. So uh, this was a lovely period to be able to write about. It's quite a sad time for Cardassia because I think it misses its chance uh, to go one way rather than the path it takes ultimately. Yeah. Um, yeah. Darn Klingons. Klingons, Why? Exactly. Yeah, it's all their fault. <laughs> uh, speaking of war, um, DS9 did its best and it succeeded uh, in getting rid of a lot of those uh, Roddenberry tropes. Uh, no conflicts between humans, you know, no uh, war or military sort of elements or at least uh, minimized. Because uh, I think he was generally hopeful for the future, but fans sure like their ships blowing up in the pew pew. Uh, do you think that there's a problem reconciling the type of future Trek says that it wants uh, with the kind of shoot 'em up action that we expect from space sci-fi? Uh, there probably is a, a problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the spaceships are pretty cool, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also the, uh, it, it, it's funny, I was having, I was having this discussion the other day, I was doing a panel about uh, utopian fiction and, and, and people were sort of talking about, oh, you need conflict for narrative. Right. Uh, and I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you need stakes. Um, I think you can have quite gentle stories. Um, uh, I, I, th I think next generation uh, tells a very different type of story, but it's a kind of storytelling I find very absorbing. Um, and Deep Space Nine is just doing something else. It's much more kind of high stakes, conflictual. Uh, and I'm not, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not as a rule invested in big sort of beat 'em ups and shoot 'em ups. Sure. But I think that's because um, with this type of television, they've not actually got much in the way of money to show you the big shoot 'em ups. Right. So in fact, the battles that you see are a very, very small scale. The Odo and Garrick in an in interrogation room. Mm. It's Garrick and Cisco with Garrick corrupting him. It's Kira finding her courage to speak to power when she's you know dealing with Kai Wynn. So although we have ostensibly got uh, um, it's Demar battling alcoholism and finding his better nature, though we ostensibly have this big pew pew show. Actually, a lot of what you see is a handful of people in quite small rooms. And, and and that's why it works. There is a little bit of kung fu fighting in this one, though. There is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Although we were really enjoying it because we're kind of going, it's that lovely, Blake Seven does a lot of this. Uh, uh, 
uh, uh, TV critic called Clive James calls it slow fighting, <laughs> where you see you see people sort of step onto their mark and then kind of go, oh, with right. <laughs> right. Sort of, oh, hit people on the back and that kind of thing. So it's it's proper theatrical slow fighting. It's nothing like the sharp cuts and all these sort of stuff. <laughs> yes. It's very choreographed, very stagey, and just as much fun for it is it's very enjoyable uh, despite the gloom and d- despite despite the doom and gloom in this episode there's plenty of uh funny and enjoyable bits oh, uh, yeah. you mentioned the uh the root beer scene which of course is many people's favorite uh, scene in all of uh, star trek i have a question are there any uh kind of bloodborne pathogen standards in starfleet everybody's just cutting their hands and they're dipping <laughs> it all over everything <laughs> It's an OSHA nightmare, or as you might say over there, it's a health and safety nightmare. It's it's a health and safety nightmare. That's exactly it. We can only assume that they have transcended such petty, non-utopian concerns. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to be watching that again going, you know, they're not taking proper care. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that before. That's brilliant. That's really good. Special shout out for... um, uh, the moment with with Garrick and Decats having to fight side by side and and hating each other's guts. Yes. Oh, a special uh, shout out for Cisco getting his measurements done to leak state secrets. That's, that's yes, yes. Favorite moments in the episode. So um, I, I love that. Mention. Yeah, and <laughs> I love that sort of subtle uh, action. And I also like the fact that. Just in case you didn't know, they set that up in an earlier scene, you know, when he talks about, oh, you'd be surprised what you can hear while you're tailoring, you know. And exactly. Then, yeah. Nothing's wasted, is and it? They it's pay lovely. It off. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. was particularly happy to see uh, in the bar scene or one of the bar scenes, uh, the iconic dimpled beer mug still exists in the 24th century because <laughs> uh, O'Brien is drinking his beer from one. So there's no tall pint glasses at Quark's. It's the mugs all the way. It's the proper stuff. Yeah, exactly that. What we what we don't get, what, what I miss from Star Trek is the... Uh, the the guys wearing mini skirts we we don't get enough of that <laughs> well past. we do we do have some scantily clad uh men in this uh when Dax and Kira go on the hollow suite and what yeah. i want to know is and I, we don't have time to go into sex and trek but is massage code for sex in this hollow suite program we hear about how erotic these hollow suite programs are and these look like some uh some good looking gentlemen here so is that what we mean when she's like you need to loosen up it could just be a massage. I, I, mean, su- you know, I suppose a massage are, is sometimes a massage, yes. It's sometimes, yeah, exactly that. A pipe is just a pipe. Um, you know, Kira has a very high-pressure job and a shoulder rub would probably be very, very good. I suppose that's true, yeah. I do quite like the idea that Jadzia would drag Kira off to a brothel. That's quite <laughs> <laughs> quite a Jadzia thing to do. Well, she so, takes her to the Renfest later, so. I know, Kira's <laughs> just sitting there in terror, isn't she? <laughs> Poor Kira. <laughs> Just cruel. It could well be. I, I think you could I, I think you'd happily read it either way. I suppose. But what's that's his true. name? Malco. Yeah. Yeah, right. Poor yeah. Malco. Exactly. <laughs> uh well as we uh come to the end, did you have any parting shots or last thoughts about this episode that you've seen so many times now? Oh, I just uh I, I enjoy it every single time and I, I get I get rewarded watching it every other time. It it, it was the it was my gateway to Deep Space Nine. It was the moment that I saw Garrick and little hearts appeared in front of my eyes. And <laughs> I am I am incredibly fond of this episode. And for all that you watch it now and it creeps a little bit or, you know, the fighting is slow or it's not as glossy as TV is now. I still love it to bits. Are you looking forward to the What We Left Behind DS9 documentary? 
Oh, God, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Oh, yeah, can't wait. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that as well, and I hope it comes out soon. Uh, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Who's my favorite captain and why? My favorite captain is Picard, obviously. Hmm. Yeah, you know. Obviously, it's Picard. <laughs> well, I don't think that it's obvious necessarily. We've no, just talked about Cisco and gang for a no long time. No justification needed. Okay. Why? Because it's Picard. <laughs> I feel like I can accept that, knowing Picard as I do. Yeah, exactly that. So, Picard, that's the answer. <laughs> it's a good answer. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you will receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Uh, I work in the Department of Chocolate Tasting. <laughs> now, these are all uh, exotic alien chocolates as well are included here. That's fine, as long as they taste good. <laughs> as long as they're free. <laughs> yes, of course. That or uh, they always complain, uh, people on the show, that the replicated food doesn't taste as good as the real thing. So hopefully it's not a I Love Lucy situation where you just have to taste replicated chocolate all day to make sure they got it right. It's like mocklets from Friends. Or oh, mocklet. You're right. <laughs> No, my job isn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered a lot of TV that's not Star Trek today. We have. <laughs> well, uh, Edson McCormick, thanks for talking to me uh, about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, I am almost entirely uh, online now at Twitter under the uh, uh, not very good disguise of at Una McCormack. Okay. And uh, do, are you working on anything that you can uh, talk about that's coming up soon? Oh, I think if I told you, I'd have to kill you. But oh, uh, I understand. <laughs> or I take know. away your chocolate privileges. But, oh, no. Uh, that, no, I need yeah, my chocolate. Even worse. My, yeah, my yeah. alien I've, chocolate. I've got a couple of things coming out from Big Finish uh, that have just been announced. Okay. So um, I've got New Blake 7 uh, coming out, oh, which great. is... is literally just been announced so and i've had i had a lot of fun with that one um uh, i was that was great one of my best days at the, in the studio with that one so um if if, if people like like seven they can they can see that excellent well thanks again for joining me my privilege my pleasure thank you very much and we are signing off until the next mission hailing frequencies closed it's on your mind.